Welcome to Safe Dividend Investing. In Podcast 76, in addition to answering the usual five questions from investors, I will finish reading from Chapter 5 of Income and Wealth from Self-Directed Investing. The chapter's title is Stocks and Other Investments. In this podcast, I will cover common shares. Question number one. Why do consumers in debt suffer more than corporations in debt? Commercial credit is different than consumer credit. The shareholder of a limited company have no responsibility for the debt if a company goes bankrupt. They have limited liability. The owner investors can only lose what they have invested in the company. Granting credit to a limited company is very similar to speculative stock investing. The credit manager must calculate the risk knowing if he misjudges the degree of risk, his company could lose the value of the sale. Large companies may have hundreds of thousands of companies that they are taking risks on. They expect to lose a small percentage of their sales to bad debt every year. One or two percent of sales would not be unusual. If it was lower than one percent, they may be seen as being too restrictive in their credit granting. They have all kinds of techniques to limiting their exposure. For example, selling the receivables to a factoring company, buying credit insurance, getting personal guarantees from the major shareholders in a small company. Since they are often borrowing money from a bank using their account receivable as security on the loan, they can also have a banker peering over their shoulder and warning them that they cannot use a specific receivable as security. The credit managers attend monthly meetings for their industry in which a room full of credit managers share their experience with the customer. It is all very organized. The lines of credit with commercial customers can be in the millions of dollars. In consumer credit, the credit card companies share their experiences with consumers. Shareholders of a failed company can and often immediately open a new limited company and resume buying from the same supplier who lost money in their previous bankruptcy. Since they got rid of their debt in the bankruptcy, they may be a lower credit risk because they now have no debt. Companies need to make sales or they will go bankrupt. Thus, to make sales, they will bet on a company. The sales managers who have a sales budget to meet are often pushing the credit manager to accept a risky sale. The creditor is in a competitive environment. If they do not accept the sale, the customer will seek a supplier who will give them credit or extended credit terms, which allows them to acquire the goods and resell these goods to their customers before the receivable comes due. A lost sale hurts the company that would not take a chance on that customer. It is more of a game than consumer credit, where personality flaw may never allow a deadbeat to change their habits. They never learn to limit their costs to their income. If they go bankrupt, they cannot recreate themselves and start off fresh like in commercial credit. That consumer bankruptcy will be reported by a credit reporting agency for seven years. They will have to declare their history of bankruptcy when seeking credit. People also skip out on their debts and try to disappear. It costs time and money to hunt them down. A business can't skip 
it needs a permanent address in order to operate. About 20% of all consumers have difficulty handling debt. About 5% of them will be unable to pay their bills and be placed with collection agencies. Only about a third of this debt will be collected. The collection agency may take a third of what they collect as a commission. Large companies do not suddenly go bankrupt. They ease into insolvency, usually over a few years. It is like a slow leak in a tire versus a tire exploding. There is often enough warning to limit the amount of the loss. Question number two. What relationship is there between mutual funds and stocks? As a self-directed investor, you can buy 20 financially strong companies paying high dividends that will give you a dividend income worth about 6% of the money you spent to buy the stocks. You will receive this dividend income even though market crashes and recessions take place. The total wind time costs to buy the 20 stocks will be between zero and $200, depending on which financial institution you buy them from. You will know exactly what you're invested in and why you carefully chose those stocks. If you spent the same amount of money to buy mutual funds through an investment advisor, you could, with the fund management fees included, spend around 4% of the value of the money you are investing. Thus, if you bought $100,000 worth of mutual fund units, you would probably cost you close to $4,000, not just this year, but every year that you own that fund. You will have no control over what the fund is invested in, and unlike regular dividend payouts, you will probably have to sell off a piece of your mutual fund to get enough money to live on. Thus, each time you take a piece of the mutual fund, you're shrinking the value of your portfolio. You have only a vague idea of what the fund is invested in. In a market crash, you may find, as I did, that your mutual fund's value has shrunk by $300,000. With stock scoring software to pick financially strong companies paying high dividends and historical share price and dividend payout records, it is not difficult to build a strong, safe, self-directed portfolio. Friends have asked me to write books about this way of investing because it's a long way from traditional speculative investing. Investment costs are important. Question number three. How did you survive the 2008 stock market crash? I lived off my dividend income. For 20 years, I've only invested in financially strong companies paying high dividends, over 3.5%. During the 2008 stock market crash, the value of my portfolio fell by almost 50%. However, my dividend income remained steady. A few stocks even increased their dividend payouts. The bank stocks that were paying a 4% dividend yield automatically jumped up to over 6% when their share prices dropped. Despite paying the same dividend amount, I sat back, relaxed, and waited for the share prices of my stocks to gain rise to record highs, which they all did. This growth keeps me well ahead of inflation. Fear of loss and the greed for more money 
are the enemies of most investors. To me, investing is just another form of commercial risk. This is why I designed the stock scoring software to help me make logical choices of strong dividend stocks. This, when combined with the historical records of share prices and dividend payouts, are all I need to build a strong, generous portfolio. Living on a dividend income means you must invest as a self-directed investor. Otherwise, investment advisor fees, commissions, charges, and so on eat up most of your dividend income. My income is a steady 6% of my portfolio's value. Friends had me write books about investing this way because it's a radical departure from speculative investing. Question number four. If Warren Buffett is a billionaire, why is my financial advisor still working and not at least financially independent? Did you forget that the stockbroker is an employee of a financial institution? He is not a stock market genius. He is employed to transfer as much money as he can from your pocket to the pocket of his employer. You are the prey, not the employer. He is trained to sell you what his employer wants him to sell. His knowledge of making money from stocks only has to be a bit better than your knowledge. Ask to see his portfolio. You may be surprised by how unimpressive it is. They only have to appear to be knowledgeable about how to make money in the stock market. They are taught how to handle objections and how to use jargon to intimidate the ignorant into silence. They have little patience and experience in analyzing stocks. They are not going to be like Warren Buffett, who will spend a whole day analyzing one annual financial statement. They just want the money that comes from doing a good job of convincing you that you are benefiting from using their services. A skilled, self-directed investor with investment knowledge and analytical skills is at an advantage to someone who is being milked for thousands of dollars every year in fees, commissions, and charges by stockbrokers. They know what they are investing in and why they are invested in it. Brokers are not known to encourage self-directed investing. Question number five. Does the market speak for itself? The market has no voice. It is a temple of greed and fear, where pessimistic speculators fearing poverty keep lowering the price they will sell their shares for in order to attract greedy, optimistic speculators who buy stocks that they fear that they will miss an opportunity to become rich. They are whipsawed back and forth by the media publishing outrageous speculative investment stories to sell advertising and buy stock promoters paid to sell shares, mutual funds, and bonds to enrich their clients and themselves. The circus goes on despite the reality that no one can accurately predict future share prices. So if the market does speak, it is a babble of conflicting views being interpreted and manipulated by millions of investors who singularly make buying and selling decisions based more on emotion than on logic. Successful, logical, analytical investors 
do not listen to the babble. They invest on what the hard financial numbers and the stock's history is telling them. Now, reading from chapter 5, Common Shares. What is a great investment? One that is safe, has the potential to grow, pays out regular amounts of money, protects you from the tax man, as it grows and instantly brings millions of buyers and sellers together to establish prices and make immediate sales. It is an investment that you can buy or sell in seconds to potentially millions of people with a minimal of effort, while incurring less than $10 in transaction expenses, even if that asset is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. It is an investment with incredible amounts of free statistical data to help you make informed, logical buy and sell decisions. To protect buyers, the government regulates the sale of this investment by passing laws to try to make the process transparent and above board. This investment is the buying and selling of quantum shares of public companies on a stock exchange through a self-directed stock trading account with a major financial institution. So much money is being made and lost in stock markets that it is under constant monitoring. One organization doing this monitoring is the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization, known as IROC. You can visit their website at www.irroc.ca. In this website, you can check for negatives registered against investment advisors or their employers. A free daily email publicizes fines against investment firms and advisors. It is available just for the asking. IROC is a self-regulating agency that regulates Canadian investment dealers and their 28,000 employees and agents. If approached by dealers or investment advisors not listed with IROC, you should be extra vigilant. IROC seems to fall short of covering the entire industry. One source reported that there are 120,000 people registered as financial professionals in Canada. Almost all 120,000 are dealing representatives, salespeople, registered to sell financial investments. Only about 4,000 of these 120,000 are financial professionals. Only financial professionals have a fiduciary duty to act in the client's best interest. If you must entrust your portfolio to a third party, it is hoped you would receive a more upfront, honest service from a registered financial professional than you would from a commissioned salesperson. If you have any doubts that some sharks in the investment industry are fleecing their clients, visit the website for the Small Investor Protection Association, S-I-P-A, at https colon backslash backslash S-I-P-A dot C-A. This nonprofit organization is a depository of articles from the media. It provides details 
on the culture of greed that pervades the financial industry. It also gives access to legal judgments stored with the Canadian Legal Information Institute. They are available for review if you ever contemplate a legal action involving an investment dispute. Some deceptions going on in the investment industry verge on the ridiculous. For example, a financial advisor spelled with an O-R is an unregulated title that anyone can use, while advisor spelled with an E can only be used by employees with fiduciary responsibilities. The Ontario Securities Commission confirms that only advisor with an E-R is a legal term under securities law. Tax avoidance should always be considered when investing. Investors only get to keep their net return after tax. Therefore, Canadian investors in stocks should take advantage of all the tax shelters that are available. These include RRSP, Registered Retirement Savings Plans, TFSA, Tax-Free Savings Accounts, and RESP, Registered Educational Saving Plans. There are limitations as to how much you can invest in these tax shelters, but whatever income you put in an RRSP or an RESP gives you an immediate tax reduction. Any dividend and capital gains from sales made that are kept in these tax shelters are not subject to tax. This allows you to maximize the growth of your portfolio. You can also create a tax shelter by incorporating a company and leaving some income in the company. The corporate tax rate is lower than your personal rate. To get this tax advantage, the business must have the ability to make a profit. Such a corporation also allows you to write off legitimate business expenses against any taxable revenue that the corporation generates. Any operating losses of your corporation can also be used to offset capital gains you might realize on your stock investments. It is important for Canadians who buy stocks inside an RRSP or TFSA to stick to Canadian stocks. Dividends earned from foreign stocks in a TFSA and an RRSP may be subject to withholding tax from a foreign country. Fluctuating foreign exchange rates can also wreak havoc on a portfolio. All good things, including tax shelters, end. When you turn 71, you must begin to liquidate your RRSP, which may have been growing tax-free for decades. That first year, they require you to withdraw 5%. It will be treated as fully taxable income. Since you would have earned dividends of at least 5% in your RRSP and anticipated this withdrawal, you can use this uninvested dividend income to meet your expected tax withdrawal. Doing this avoids having to sell any of the shares in your RRSP. This allows the capital gains in your portfolio to keep on growing and spinning off ever more dividend income. Each year thereafter, the percentage of government RRSP tax withdrawal 
increases. If you reach your mid-90s, your RRSP will reduce to zero with these minimal withdrawals from it. You will either have spent what you have withdrawn or reinvested it after paying taxes on it in your main trading account. Capital gain realized from the stock sold from your main trading account incurs half the tax of employment income. Dividend income is taxed at a reduced rate that fluctuates depending on your total income. Many REITs, real estate investment trusts, pay high dividend yields and are an important part of value investors' portfolio. Tax breaks exist on income realized from them because a portion of the monthly dividend paid is a tax-free return of invested capital rather than a straight dividend payout or capital gain. Getting all the tax breaks and keeping Revenue Canada happy requires a good accountant. While tax breaks can save you money, they are only of value if you are getting a significant return on your investments. Many investors earn nothing from their investments because they buy a stock at the wrong time when it has reached its peak price and sell it at the wrong time when it has reached its bottom price. Whether you are at the peak or at the bottom, you can only be realized after the fact. It is never obvious when you are making an investment decision. But what is obvious and ignored in pursuit of a hot stock are the signs of value, operating margins, price to earnings, ratios, dividend payouts, the book value of the stock, and so on. The most you can lose on a stock price is 100% of what you paid for that stock. However, what makes common shares so attractive is that there is no lid how much you can make on a carefully chosen stock. A big gain in one stock can easily offset small losses you might experience in others. Since no one can accurately predict the future by investing in several well-chosen good stocks, you increase the chances of having multiple winners whose price gains will grow your portfolio. Statistically, over 50% of your well-chosen stocks will increase in value. Even in a stock market crash, not all stocks will decline. A 5% pullback on the total value of your portfolio will occur a couple of times each year. You will probably not even notice it. Every three years, expect a 10 to 20% correction to occur. After such a downturn, you should expect it to take about four months for your portfolio to green what it lost. A bear market occurs when the average share price decline exceeds 20%. I've been through two. The dot-com implosion saw the NASDAQ Composite Index decline by 88% in March 2000 and pull down all other stock indexes in the world. The NASDAQ, where most of those speculative, profitable dot-com internet stocks were being traded. While the index's drop was sharp, share prices quickly recovered. In 2008, there was a 57% drop in the Standard and Poor 500 index. Misinformed speculators invested in mortgage-backed securities that were anything but secure. At the same time, home buyers could buy homes without down payments 
or background checks to determine if they could meet the mortgage payment. This caused a supply and demand bubble that drove up house prices at a non-precedented rate. Greedy financiers needed home buyers, any buyer, so they could bundle more and more subprime mortgages into funds, these units they could sell to eager investors who were looking for safe investments with high rates of return that were fully secured by real estate. Unfortunately, a house that originally sold for $500,000 during a frenzy to $100,000 when the bubble of insolvency burst, the mortgage-backed securities were as worthless as the mortgages they had secured. Stock exchanges around the world were staggered by the loss. There is a credit risk score applied to every adult in the United States. If anyone had wanted to take the time to analyze the mortgage holders who were securing these securities, the pending disaster would have been obvious. However, there are none so blind as those who choose to be, especially clever financiers earning huge commissions caught up in the frenzy of selling a flawed investment to gullible investors, buying something they did not know how to analyze or understand. It took years for house prices to recover and for investors to forget the pain of their loss. Next week, I will continue reading this last part of Chapter 5. Thanks for listening. If you wish more information on investing and stock scoring, please visit my website, www.saferbetterdividendinvesting.com.